Okay, hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you are bored of people on the internet arguing about subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Here at the world-famous Angel Comedy Club, our amazing expert guest this week is the Africa editor of the Financial Times here in London and the author of The Growth Delusion, David Pilling, welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks very much. I'm slightly nervous. Let's see <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the this is what we like to engender in our guests. No, Good, it's no. worked. Yeah, it is a bit of a weird studio we have here. It's like a black curtain and mm -hmm. pretty much nothing else. It could be an ISIS video. <laughs> that's pretty much where we are. Uh, so, uh, David, uh, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, for you. very much for coming on. We really look forward to speaking to you about your book, The Growth Delusion. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about uh, how you are, where you are, and how maybe you formed the opinions that you have now. How has that happened? Sure, okay. I mean, look, I've been a journalist at the Financial Times for longer than I'd care to mention, but, you know, 25 years, let's say. Um, throughout that time, I've been posted abroad. I was posted in Latin America. I was in Japan. Uh, then I covered all of Asia. Now I cover Africa and I've covered many other things um, in between. And one of the things that struck me or crept up on me is that we use this term GDP, gross domestic product, which really is synonymous with the economy. When we talk about the economy or when we talk about growth, that is what we're talking about, GDP. And as a journalist working for the Financial Times, a very serious and I think a, actually a, a, an excellent newspaper, but one becomes used to using that as a kind of a metric and you measure things against it, tax to GDP, debt to GDP, you know, um, this economy is growing by 3%, so it must be better than this one that's only growing at 2 and not nearly as good as that one that's growing at 10. But it's, it began to creep up on me. Well, what does this number really mean? What's in it? Um, when I turned to Japan, I moved to Japan in uh, 2000, late 2001, and Japan was supposedly an example of an economy that was in utter crisis. It had stagnated um, for... 10 years and was to stagnate for another 10 practically while I was there. Its GDP in nominal terms just did not move at all. If it was a heart patient, Japan was dead. And that is how, <laughs> that is how people at, at the FT used to kind of, they, 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 you know, when people talked about Japan, they'd talk in these kind of mournful, sorrowful, sort of sorrowful voices, like what happened there then, you know, why is it in such a mess? Um, and so I began to kind of think, well, this is not reflecting the reality that I'm seeing around me, which was a society with lots of problems, for sure, but incredibly dynamic. Uh, looked, Tokyo certainly looked to me far richer than London. In many ways, uh, quality of life was far better, I thought, than in, than in Britain. And it certainly was not an, a, a, a society anyway that had stagnated. It was changing. It was moving. It was adapting. Maybe not always in the right ways. But GDP didn't seem to be telling me anything at all that was really worth knowing about Japan. And a politician came from London. I was taking him through the streets of Tokyo, which, you know, can be kind of overawing, really, in the sort of, you know, the stuff that's going on and the lights and the people lining up for incredible restaurants and all this activity. And he said, David, if this is a recession, I want one. <laughs> um, so basically, I mean, I could go on, but, but basically I began to think, well, what is this number that we take so seriously? And yet, you know, I have found just in my reporting that it doesn't always tell you, sometimes tells you, but it doesn't always tell you everything you need to know at all. Um, and so what, what is in this number and why have we come to take it so seriously? So that's the genesis of my book. So if you were going to explain GDP to an absolute layman who's never encountered it, how would you describe it? Okay, well, GDP was invented in the 1930s, so it's man-made, um, <laughs> which is important to know. It's yeah, not a gift yeah. from God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we treat it now. Probably. As we yeah. treat it now. You know, you could say height. You could say metres and feet are man-made, but you're measuring something real. Mm. Yeah. GDP is measuring a kind of a, an artificial construct, I would say, first of all. So it measures all the goods and services produced uh, uh, in a year um, at market prices, at the, uh, it assigns a price to that. So, okay. so there's a rationality to it, um, but it's a measure of what economists call flow. It only measures income. Um, it measures what you're producing in a particular period and actually a period that's already gone in the past. It doesn't tell you really that much about what might come in the future. And for example, if you were looking at a company uh, if you were investing in a company, you wouldn't just look at its profits um, because maybe its profits were brilliant last year, but maybe it had sold off all its intellectual property, fired all its workers, you know, um, sold off all its machinery. And next year you knew it was going to make zero. But a, a, someone investing in the company would never settle for that. They'd say, what's your balance sheet look like? What are your assets? 
And we don't do that um, within, uh, within economy. We only look at the flow. Now, there's much, much, much more that I can t um, tell you about GDP, but that's, that's your sort of starting definition. Well, that's really interesting. But and so I, I read a few interviews with you, uh, which were absolutely fascinating, in particular one with the Washington Post. And you were talking about things like theft being part of GDP. Well, theft can be part of GDP. Um, GDP is meant to measure, and it varies from country to country, which is important. There is a sort of standardized measure, but it doesn't mean that it's an exact science. And when we talk about Britain's GDP and the US GDP and America's GDP, sorry, America is, is, the, is the US, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it Cuts. depends. Uh, my mother is Venezuelan, Venezuela, and she says, America is not the world. America right. is the whole continent. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. yeah. America Latina. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so, so they're not entirely uh, comparable, but they are more or less anyway. Um, theft generally counts. Um, if I steal your Porsche, uh, you, you have one, I believe. I love the assumption that Francis has a Porsche. I, I, Mate, I don't even have a driving <laughs> license. <laughs> I saw it parked outside. Are you yeah. kidding? Anyway, if I steal your Porsche, that does not contribute to GDP. However, if I then sell your Porsche, mm onto you mm. and then go out and spend all my ill-gotten gains on something, then I have absolutely contributed to GDP. Because GDP is actually a measure, another way of looking at it is kind of velocity. It's the, it's the way that money moves through the system. Um, if I sell you heroin, that absolutely counts as GDP because Britain counts hard drugs um, uh, and <laughs> prostitution. Um, so we count um, uh, heroin, amphetamines, cocaine, crack cocaine, uh, ecstasy and marijuana. So if you don't take one of those, Francis, then you're really not doing your bit for GDP. <laughs> you're not doing your bit for the British economy. I'm going to tell my parents my university education wasn't a waste after all. <laughs> exactly. You were really doing your bit there. You're paying back your student grant before. Yeah. <laughs> Contributing before the to the economy like a regular citizen. So, uh, what, I mean, we're laughing at it, uh, but one of the points you make... Uh, in the book and, and elsewhere is that this way of looking at GDP actually has serious consequences. Well, my book's meant to be a quite entertaining, but it is absolutely, it's meant to tell you, it's meant to be a window or a door or what a trap door or whatever you want to call it into this, what appears to be an arcane subject, the, the economy, economics, GDP, GDP went up 2.1%, you know, but blah, blah, blah. Um, and we kind of glaze over a lot of people glaze over. And yet, um, if you look at uh, political manifestos, um, they always talk about the economy. Mm. This is quite new, actually. Until 1950, um, uh, the economy and making the economy better and all of that was not mentioned in political manifestos. I think in the last Tory party manif manif uh, manifesto, it was mentioned about 80 times. We will not do anything bad to the economy. We must make policies that are good for the economy. So I feel that it is kind of incumbent on us to know what it is we're talking about when we're talking about the economy. And the way, the single way we measure our national economies, or the, the, the way that's, that, that certainly um, is used in the sort of public discourse, is this weird number, GDP. So I think that uh, we ought to know more about it. I mean, just to finish off that story, Brexit. So just before the Brexit vote, um, there was a guy, Anna Menon, went up from University College London. And he went to Newcastle and he said, look, we cannot vote for Brexit. This would be nuts. Um, you know, economists tell us this will be very damaging for our GDP. And someone stood up in the audience and said, that's your bloody D GDP. That's not our GDP. Mm. So this is something that's absolutely relevant to us. And just to finish, 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 mm. Nicolas Sarkozy, um, former French president, who commissioned a whole study into how we measure our well-being and our lives and he wrote a preface, which was extraordinarily good, actually. And he said, look, when people um, look at their lives as measured by experts and they're told that their lives look a certain way, but it just doesn't feel like that, then they become angry. And he said, and if there's that gap, nothing is more dangerous mm -hmm. to democracy. Um, and I think that's quite prescient in an age of Duterte and Trump and Brexit and all sorts of other things. Now, I'm not saying that's the entire explanation, but I am saying that seems to touch a certain nerve of, a, of the world we're living in today. Well, let's delve into that a little bit. But actually, back, back to your point about the, the Geordie guy. Uh, I lived in Scotland uh, just before the referendum that happened there. And one of the, the points that my Scottish friends were always making to me after I left uh, in this discussion about the Scottish independence movement, uh, they were always saying, well, the, the London elites are telling us that the economy's 
going to be better if we stay together. And <laughs> one of my Scottish friends says, that's like saying that someone else should sleep with my wife because he'd be better at it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I, I think this idea that the economy is the overwhelming thing that matters to everybody. I don't think people actually find that that is their personal experience. Well, it used to be, it's the economy, stupid. That's what Bill Clinton yeah. said. And, and it, there may have been a time when it was true. I think it's not true now. I think people think about other things. And they also think that our definition of the economy doesn't, doesn't match our lives. I well, mean, isn't that it? Because, for example, in the time of the economy, stupid, what they were really talking about is it's jobs, it's job security, and these are things that are eroding now. And it may be, job and it may be things like that are more intangible than that, like sense of community or mm. safety. Things that, for example, were very strong in Japan that weren't being picked up at all. Or, you know, I mean, look, our services are about eighty percent of our economies, but GDP is absolutely awful at measuring services. It's very good at measuring tables and chairs and mugs and things you can drop on your foot or put in a wheelbarrow. But it's dreadful at measuring haircuts and psychoanalysis sessions and investment banking products uh, and, you know, um, Boeing engine service contracts uh, and computer contracts and all the things that are actually part of our modern life. GDP is very, very bad because it can't really figure out quality. So we're using a measure of quantity, I would argue, to, to measure what is increasingly a life that's defined by quality. And the other just sort of elephant in the room, sorry to use that horrible cliche, but is distribution. Um, so you're talking about Scotland. So when we talk about the economy is doing well, the economy is growing by 2%, that doesn't tell you anything about how that money is being distributed. So the American economy has been doing quite well with a few dips for a long, long time. But it's not doing quite well if you're uh, a non-college um, uh, graduate. Um, uh, and, and even there are some numbers that suggest that median household wages have stagnated since the 1970s. So in fact, the, the economy growing is kind of bad for you because all you're doing is seeing other people doing better and you being left behind. And that, that creates a huge anger uh, or certainly can create a huge anger. And there's a time when that tips from the American dream, I too can make it, to no, I can't. <laughs> this has been going on too long. The system's rigged against me. So you'll keep telling me that things are good and things are getting better and we're growing and we're two times richer and three times richer and four times richer than we have been. Well, it bloody well doesn't feel like it to me. Um, so, I mean, again, to use another question, uh, to use another cliche, the million-dollar question is, how do we redress that balance? Where, you know, it seems to be uh, the rich are getting richer and people are going, hey, you know what, the economy is getting better. Then you're going, yeah, but my wages haven't increased. Sure. How, 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 what, what do we do? Well, uh, there, are, there, there are two questions wrapped up in one there. Um, you know, one is, how would we know? So my book is principally a book about, in a sense, measurement. That makes it sound boring, but I think all these issues kind of stem, stem from that. So, I mean, my, my, but, but that is kind of the, the orbit of my book. There are then policy description, prescriptions, you know, how might you redress this once you know it's actually happened? Um, you know, what I would say in my book is that we shouldn't make GDP, i.e. growing the entire economy, the be-all and end-all. We could look at median household Income, which is something that I just mentioned. Just for anyone who's not familiar, sorry, David, for anyone who's not familiar with statistics, can you explain the difference between mean and median? Just okay, yeah, it's quite, it's a, it's a bit tricky. So mean is you would, you would um, uh, just, you would add everything up and divide uh, by the number of people. So if you had, so you know, there's an economist joke being a, uh, an economist joke. Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, it's not very funny. <laughs> um, Bill Gates walks into a bar. On average, everyone in the room is a billionaire. That's the mean. Yeah. You didn't laugh. That's, <laughs> that, so, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's the mean. You divide uh, the room of 100 people by Bill Gates' fortune and everyone is a, is a billionaire. You know, if you have um, uh, four people um, uh, and they have an average uh, income of 25, that's not bad. Um, so long as one person doesn't have 100, in which case the, your other three have unfortunately starved to death. Um, that's your mean. Yeah. Um, median is slightly different. Median, you line everybody up, which I know sounds slightly... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Totalitarian, yeah. You line everybody up and you pick the middle person. Um, so then it's not skewed by the fact that you've got Bill Gates mm. at, at this end and a few Bill Gateses kind of um, who have distorted the average and distorted what you might think is a typical existence because the typical in a very sort of economically skewed society is likely to be... Uh, worse than the average would would suggest. So so that's what median is, and that's why it's better 
than saying mean so or average. So the median average. is like the most representative uh, of the yes. of the middle ground. Nothing's ex- nothing's perfect, sure. but yes. Uh, and of course, you might have a lot of very poor people who are just kind of left out of that. But yes, it's the middle ground. Um, so if you if you shifted your number. Um, so that people stood up and didn't say, I'm going to grow the economy by 3%, which Donald Trump said. But if he said, I'm going to grow median household incomes, catchy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can see it's going to catch on. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm fighting a winning battle here <laughs> yeah. by 3%. Mm. Then uh, that, could, that, that would skew your whole policy agenda. Now, how you would get there is to be debated. You know, uh, redistribution, um, you know, subsidies, t- training, you know, we can, we can discuss the details, and that's politics. Mm. Although one of the things I am arguing in my book, actually, is that numbers are politics. You know, they're not just dry, uh, because what we choose to measure actually sets our priorities for what we then um, uh, try to create. And sometimes that will be explicit, and sometimes it will be implicit. We won't even notice that we've set this agenda uh, without really knowing it. Um, so my starting point would be, to slightly downgrade GDP, it's not a useless number at all. It's a, it, they called it the great invention of the 20th century, and that's not entirely unkind. It's not entirely untrue, I mean. Um, but you could downgrade it slightly. No, don't take it as seriously as we do and elevate a few other numbers, numbers that might tell us about distribution, numbers that might tell us about sustainability, the wealth, what we're doing to our natural environment, what we're doing to... Um, uh, our infrastructure. So the details of that. So median household income is number one. What yeah. else? What else would you want to incorporate? Well, into I think it? you should have a proxy of sustainability. Uh, um, you know, look, Saudi Arabia could be, uh, and in fact is, um, you know, busily selling its oil creates a very uh, high standard of living. GDP is going fantastically well. But what happens when the oil runs out? GDP, our standard measure of, of the economy, tells you zero about that. Now, it doesn't mean Saudi Arabia are stupid and they're not going to do anything about it. In fact, they have a whole political turmoil now, part of which may be that, that that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to do um, um, something about it. But some kind of measure of sustainability. And there are measures. Some of them are very technical. Um, uh, and we can talk about those. The World Bank has just come out with one, which I think is really interesting. But you could also come up with a proxy and some of these things are just proxies you could say co2 for example it wouldn't be perfect but you could say you know let's have a policy uh, uh you know let's run a society where the aim is not merely to produce as much as we can and you know hang the environment you could have a policy that said co2 or some other proxy of how sustainable this growth is um, which would kind of set a limit or would, or would push you in different directions so that if you wanted to grow, and we can discuss what grow might mean, you could grow in ways that don't necessarily mean chucking tons of plastic into the oceans, for example, which has been a preferred method, um, uh, you know, hitherto. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, burning the ozone off or destroying all our rainforests or uh, heating up the earth to such an extent that you know, it is already almost indubitably and and certainly will even more as we go forward, you know, change weather patterns uh, in ways that are highly unpredictable um, and that could be and are likely to be extremely damaging to lots of people. Right. That's absolutely fascinating. If we could just go back. So you were talking about so that, that gap. We were talking about the gap between rich and poor. How much do you think? I mean, because I think that's one of the major reasons why Trump got to power Mm -hmm. is because no politician addressed those people. How much do you think uh, capitalism is to blame? How much is globalization to blame? And what can we do essentially to try and fix it, really? Because it just seems that things are getting harder and harder. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on. Um, So, uh, you know, one of the themes of our age is that we're becoming more and more unequal. Um, so a lot of people would nod their heads in that Are li- we? listening to your globally not. So t- t- tell glo- us so, the facts about that. So globally not. So what is what is happening is that especially in wealthy countries, that tends to be true. If you look at, you know, the top 10 percent versus the bottom 10 percent, you, 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 t- you tend to see um, this rising, the differential rising and in some cases rising uh, quite dramatically. I mean, I've noticed that there are numbers in Britain that seem to dispute some of that. But, but 
you know, as numbers that I've looked at would show that inequality has has risen quite substantially. It may have tailed off at certain points, but it's risen quite substantially over the last 20, 30 years. In the US, it's risen an awful lot. Even in egalitarian Japan, it rose. It's risen in egalitarian Scandinavia. So if you're in the top percent, college educated, do computer science or whatever, you know, you're, you're global, you're international, you've got skills, you're doing really well now. And if you're not, you're sort of um, falling behind. However, there is another story, and it's an important story that gets kind of lost when, in, in, in our debate, which is that whole other parts of the world, China being a very, uh, you know, a prime example, are actually beginning to close that gap. So if you look at the differential between, you know, um, Chinese income and US or British income, you know, they've been closing that gap uh, since the 1990s and, you know, at increasing kind of speed. Uh, I used to know these numbers off, off by heart, but... You know, uh, let's say in 1990, the differential was about 20. It might be about four now. I mean, this is like a freight train coming. Mm. So in that sense, inequality is not um, uh, um, increasing globally. And globalization has actually been good. But it's been good if you're Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's been good if you're Indian. Now, I'm a globalist. So to me, that is great uh, because I think that, you know, China and India had been exploited, chopped about by colonialism, pushed out of the global system. And, you know, they now have managed to incorporate themselves in. And it's it's, you know, it's not perfect by any means. I mean, it's, you know, um, you know, politically or economically or in terms of social justice, you know, but the tendency is definitely that those countries are catching up. But it does create all sorts of upheavals uh, in our own countries. And we need to you know, you don't necessarily need to ditch globalization to deal with that, although you might you might do at some point, but you don't have to. But what you what you do need to do is have policies that smooth that ride um, which, you know, may well involve, you know, training, technology, distribution, universal basic income, uh, higher inheritance tax to make things fairer when people die. They can't just kind of pass on privilege in a kind of Piketty style fashion um, you know, to the next generation. Um, so a combination of all those, but it would need to be a much more kind of rigorous policy if, if you really think that that's important. I mean, I personally do think that's important. Of course, some people don't. Some people think inequality is, you know, even in a place like America or Britain, some people argue it's good. I, I disagree with this entirely. They'd say it's motivational, you know. And why, um, do, you, why do you disagree with it? Um, because I think that, that people are often wealthy by fortune, their fortune of birth, fortune of the school they went to, fortune of their connections. Uh, there's a lot of luck. They may have trampled over lots of people on their way to get wealthy. That if we just um, uh, say, you know, he's uh, 10 times wealthier than I, so he must be 10 times better. I, you know, I absolutely reject that. Mm. Um, so I don't like this idea of a meritocracy of but wealth. But in fact, one of the things you talk about is that inequality is bad for society. Well, yeah, I don't talk about it that much. There are whole books about this, but I, I, I absolutely think it, uh, it, it is. I mean, look, I used to be an idealist. I'm probably less of an idealist than I used to be. <laughs> I happens with age, doesn't it? <laughs> it <Yeah>. does. <laughs> How old do you say I am? <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, so I think some inequality is inevitable because, you know, we could distribute the same amount of money to the four of us and, you know, probably you'd end up really wealthy and he, he and I would end up on the street. You'd have to sell your Porsche, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, you know, no matter how much you try, you know, you, you, you know, but what I am interested in is equality of um, opportunity. Mm. Look, there are whole studies and there's a whole chapter on happiness. Um, and happiness, I think, has been uh, in my book, um, I should say. The happiness, I think, has been a little bit sort of um, uh, undermined and, and, and ridiculed, in a sense, by this whole Bhutanese, you know, gross national happiness, um, where Bhutan put forward happiness instead of GDP mm. or economic expansion. Um, and while it may have been onto something, I think it's a sort of fairly flawed exercise. Again, we could talk about that um, uh, if you'd like. But looking at this more rigorously, I actually found that when you measure happiness economists call it um subjective well-being because it sounds posher and you might take it more seriously um so how when, do you feel <laughs> how is your subjective well-being mine's pretty good today yeah. <laughs> better for that coffee yeah. <laughs> um if we were filming at night and had a glass of wine it would be it would be better still um but um look uh so a lot of subjective well-being tests and uh you know studies would show more or less the following that if you're very poor you're unhappy um, you know, if you can't send your kids to school, if you can't put a roof over your head, 
if you if you uh, worry about where the next meal is coming from or your uh, what happens if you get sick, you will be unhappy. You and you will tell someone on a they call it the the cantrell ladder scale. You will tell someone I'm really feeling unhappy. Now, once you begin to satisfy um, those what you might call basic needs, human rights, whatever you want to call them, um, and you get to a certain level of wealth. Now we could, or income, we could argue about what that is. Let's say it's fifteen thousand dollars per capita, twenty thousand dollars per capita. What the studies find is that you actually don't move much up. So more um, money after that. Point more money after that happy. doesn't make much doesn't difference. Doesn't increase your subjective well-being. It doesn't increase. Yeah, let's get it right. It does not increase your subjective well-being. All this, uh, you know, street talk. So if you've happiness. got your fifteen grand a year, you're okay. Yeah, right. Yes. Now, that's what, the studies that's what the studies would suggest. Now, think of it in a different way. Let me tell you two kind of anecdotes that, that, that might sort of bring this to life. So um, if you're in a football match and you're all sat down and then one guy stands up craning his neck and then someone else behind him stands up and then someone else stands up. And before you know it, the whole stadium is stood up. Now, they have exactly the same view of the match that they had before, but they now all have the inconvenience of having stood up a bit of ha- and having to stand up through the whole match. Um, that, you could argue, is the, gr- is the kind of rat race cycle that we've kind of got ourselves into. We're all stood up. You know, next we'll have to be on tippy toes just to get you know, even better and then maybe get a stepladder. So and none of us are going to get a better view of the match. None of us are going to have better subjective well-being or feel more happy. In fact, we'll feel less happy because we're having to work harder for exactly the same view of the match. Now, different, way, different um, uh, analogy. There's a great experiment um, where they put two capuchin monkeys, um, and if you haven't looked it up, look it up on YouTube. Mm, I think I've seen this. Yeah. So there's two monkeys, it's kind of everyone's seen it now, um, in these perspex cages, and they're being, they perform a simple task. They hand over little pebbles, and in return for a pebble, they get given a cucumber. And they're both happy as Larry, or happy as capuchin monkeys, or happy as people <laughs> yeah. watching a good football match, or whatever. Yeah. Um, then one of the trainers starts giving one of the monkeys grapes, which are better. They're sweeter, tastier. And the other monkey immediately, but immediately, gets irate. It starts shaking the cage. It flings the cucumber back at the, and it will not accept these cucumbers. Um, it is unhappy now because of relative reasons. The experiment is called Monkeys Reject Unequal Pay. Um, and uh, that was meant to be a joke, but, <laughs> but, but that is actually what the experiment is called. Yeah. You've got a perfect you comedian didn't... move there because if you make a joke and it falls flat, that's what you do. You yeah. say that was meant to be it's a the, joke. Yeah. It's the audience's fault. So so that's a little bit about the kind of the happiness quandary. So and I, I remember uh, watching a TED talk, I think, and reading some, uh, some stuff by a Swedish um, researcher who was talking about the fact that when you take pretty much every measure of subjective well-being you're learning yeah i'm I'm picking this up quickly and you plot that against income inequality within a developed country like britain like america like western what you find is essentially every measure of ill being yes goes up as inequality goes up so people there's more teenage pregnancy there's more people in prison there's more violence there's more crime there's more there's more everything there's something called there's a book called the spirit level there's been a few other books that that absolutely tend to suggest this and you can feel it can't you i mean you you know you could be living perfectly content the guy next door gets a porsche i'll keep going back to your porsche yeah (laughs) and you know now i want a porsche Uh, and you and it's sort of you know you kind of hate yourself for it but you sort of want it and you sort of can feel this creep up on you. And that, I would suggest, I mean, that's a sort of depressing bit of my book, in a sense, because although I kind of say growth is a delusion and we kind of need to wake up, kind of there's something that tells me that that there's something in all of us, me included, that's just not going to, that there is this competitive need to stay ahead. Um, uh, because, look, if you go to a beach in the Bahamas or whatever, and nobody on that beach is going to come and serve you cocktails because they're all paid twice what you get paid. You're not going to like that beach. You know, you, to some extent, your experiences are enjoyable because of the exclusivity of those experiences. So it's almost built in. You know, if you go to a restaurant and the chef says, well, sod this, I'm not cooking for you. You know, <laughs> give me a thousand pounds and maybe I'll cook you a meal. Yeah. You know, you, you know, your enjoyment of a restaurant meal is that someone's prepared to work for 20, 20 quid an hour or whatever it is. Um, uh, so there is this kind of thing that's built into humanity, maybe depressingly, that means that we're on this kind of hamster wheel. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Number one, if anybody from Porsche is actually watching <laughs> the show um, and would like to do and donate or sponsor, please do. We would uh, be very, we'd be very grateful. It'll have to be three though. Two, or you're yeah. going to have to yeah. make us unhappy. Yeah. Well, you, have you got a Porsche? <laughs> no, sorry, yeah, no, three yeah. Porsches. Three Porsches. I'm yeah. with him. No driving license. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'll get my girlfriend to drive me around in my Porsche. How about that for feminism? I don't right. even have a girlfriend, so you're one. <laughs> Uh, no, number two, are you saying that capitalism makes us miserable? Uh, possibly, aspects of it. I mean, look, what, uh, you'd have to define capitalism, wouldn't you? Um, um, the acquirement of material I mean, I don't think socialism or communism made us much uh, happier. Well, I'm from either. the Soviet <laughs> Union, yeah, I know. I know all, all so, about that. Um, yeah. uh, so, you know, that's a term. So I'm, I'd be a bit uncomfortable with the that. The pursuit of material goals. Certainly can. Mm. Um, you know, but I mean, my, mine isn't a self-help book. It's not a, you know, I mean, look, if you want to live in an empty room and live on experiences, I mean, look, there. But but I think despite our kind of, you know, sort of collecting society and uh, we are sort of almost, there's certainly a sub-trend of that. If you think what people uh, collect now, actually, I mean, it's not very healthy in some senses, but they collect experiences that they can project, you know, onto On, social onto media. Social media. Yeah. Uh, that's it's kind of ethereal. Um, or they or they collect music, the experience of music, but it just has to be streamed. You don't need a record collection. So, you know, even in this kind of cluttered, technological, heavy, materialistic world we live in, you can kind of see something fighting to come out. And yeah, I mean, look, I used to not carry a camera around for 20 odd years. I've traveled all over the world. And I remember one time I was hitching through Africa as a, as a 19 year old and I had a sort of crappy little camera, but the camera was everything to me because I wanted to capture these experiences. And so, you know, I don't know why it's hard to analyze yourself, but so I could show people, impress people. I didn't, so I could remember. I'm not quite sure, but I do remember thinking, like preserving this camera, keeping this camera and keeping these rolls of film is like so important to me to such an extent that it could even get in the way of your experience of what you're actually experienced at the time. So at that, after that, I took this kind of Zen-like um, attitude really until the you know modern mobile phones of never carrying a camera. So I'd go to tons of places and I'd see, you know, to my mind, astonishing things in the natural world, in the, you know, in the human world, in the physical world. And I would look at them and kind of try to commit them to memory and look at them unfiltered, not through a lens. Uh, you could say that's kind of zen. You could say that's anti-collecting things. I, but I was collecting stuff. I was collecting memory. Look, in the end, it's all going to go. You know, you can collect a Porsche. It's gone uh, when you die or when it's stolen or when someone rams into it. You can collect memories and they're gone when you die or if you, you know, your memory begins to go and if you get Alzheimer's or whatever. So... Everything is ethereal, but my book is not this kind of zen. zen well, this, this, uh, You've got yeah. me onto this. If you wanted some positivity, this is collect memories until your brain, uh, until your brain turns into mush <laughs> <laughs> and you die alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we're all laughing because we know it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. He's got all the comedian moves. Like he's explaining yeah. his own jokes. This is great. Well, so, since we're on the subject of happiness. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice. <laughs> uh, is there a way you think that... For, I remember you talked about Bhutan, but actually David Cameron, uh, I think in 2015, he proposed this measure of uh, the public happiness, or whatever it was called. I think he was broadly ridiculed by everybody. He was, yeah. Um, it's easy to ridicule and David I, Cameron. And I was quite surprised by that because I, I've always thought, actually, you know, happiness is quite an important measure of what's happening in society. And I've just finished reading Sapiens by an Israeli historian whose name I can neither... Yuval Noah Harari. Thank you. Perfect. And one of the things he talks about is actually evolutionary success. The mm -hmm. fact that there's lots of certain kind of creatures is not in any way a reflection of their experience of life. So, for example, domesticated cattle are hugely populous in the world right now and live absolutely hor horrible, horrible lives. Um, even though from an evolutionary point, they're one of the most successful creatures in the world. Are we kind of at that point ourselves that we've enslaved ourselves in this way? Well, uh, possibly, yeah. I mean, I've, I've also read that book and his subsequent book. Uh, he has this wonderful uh, chapter on the agricultural revolution, mm. which is meant to be the great leap of humanity when we stopped, you know, messing around in forests, hunted, gathering and, and started, um, uh, you know, agricultural communities that's, you know, freed up some people to be poets and comedians and uh, 
manufacturers and all of that and you know off society went he has this really counterintuitive um, sort of explanation of this a he says you know people's diets completely collapsed and in fact apparently life expectancy collapsed um, uh, at, at that time because people were wandering around the forest and they were eating a great variety of stuff and then they became kind of mono dietary people whatever the whatever yeah. the word is they were just eating one thing they were also doing backbreaking work um, but even more interestingly he said they'd become they'd become slaves to wheat mm. because the wheat gene passed from being quite sort of um, narrowly confined and went all over the world. So humans from roaming around happy as Larry suddenly started working in this backbreaking uh, toil for wheat. Yeah, I mean, this is his. Yeah. Um, so there we were, um, uh, you know, praising ourselves, um, uh, increasing our numbers so that we could uh, work harder for wheat. <laughs> Meanwhile, wheat, wheat the planet, is spreading yeah. all over the planet. So, you know, we think we've taken over. Maybe wheat's taken over. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating, this whole conversation. And uh, just coming back to, we've talked a little bit about how we might measure well-being, measure growth, measure G GDP or whatever it is. But what is the cost of what we're doing now? Because one of the things you talk about in the book and in, in other places that I've, I've seen you speak as well is the fact that, for example... If when we measure GDP as basically something that gets sold or not sold, if if say you have children, right, and you don't pay someone else to raise them, you uh -huh. raise them yourself. Yes, that is not a contribution to GDP, even though statistically it's very likely to be better for your children than having them brought up by a stranger. Yes, breast milk is a good example. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, so breast milk contributes zero to GDP, but you know any dietitian nutrition will tell you that this is the best thing. Um, you know, that a mother can do um, uh, for her child. And yet, you know, in the developing world, you know, you might have ad campaigns and people trying to encourage people to go back to work, contribute to the economy, you know, and you can buy powder, you know, may, may, you know, um, you can dilute it with water, you know, of questionable origin or, you know, good, good bad or indifferent. Um, and, you know, health of children, the next generations uh, will suffer, but your contribution to the economy has gone up. Well, did you not even say that you can reduce child mortality by like 20% it's, by breastfeeding or something along those there, lines? There, there are some staggering uh, uh, numbers, yes. Uh, and it's particularly strong in the developing world. And you can see if you're a politician and someone comes to you and says, you know, we could have a breastfeeding campaign that'll cost X, or I can build a great big factory down the road. We can employ all these people. They'll pay tax. You know, you might be able to take a bit of a backhander, you know, <laughs> uh, what sounds good to you. So the fact that we kind of monetize bits of the economy and call that the economy and the other bits of the economy, every bit is real, um, are not monetized and not counted, sets up these kind of weird invisible incentives, I think, and that, that by definition we may not be aware of or are not aware of, but it can kind of skew um, the, the direction that societies go in and not always for the better. And what are the other examples, sorry, Francis, what are the other examples of how this way of measuring uh, growth affects us? And well, our pollution lives? could be another good one. So, you know, if, if your goal is to maximize output, um, then uh, not only do we measure pollution as, as a kind of byproduct of whatever it is we're making. So if you take China, you know, it's been growing at 10% a year for years. And a lot of that growth is absolutely real. It's been transformative. I'm not knocking growth in, especially in poor countries. Um, but a part of that growth has been just awful, you know, fouling up the air, fouling up the rivers, uh, destroying uh, biodiversity, some of which will be irreversible. But if we try to reverse it, clean up the air, clean up the rivers, that will also contribute to GDP. So you double count stuff that is, you know, bad for us. And yet um, to our standard gauge of um, uh, economics, uh, standard gauge of what an economy is, um, you know, we don't differentiate. As long as it's bought, sold, bought and sold, it's good, no matter what it is. It could be armaments. So the more arms you produce, the more wars that, that, that go on, uh, the more cities you destroy and have to rebuild. You know, all of that is good for the flow of income. Um, you've destroyed wealth in the process, and you've, not to mention lives, um, but it's good for the economy. There must be something wrong with a measure that uh, you know, that puts that on a pedestal and that finds it harder um, to look at these, you know, what, what economists call externalities or side effects of our growth. That's very, very interesting. 
we, we're going to be moving on a little bit now. Um, so you were talking. So you're Africa correspondent. I mean, that is a that's a huge amount of land to be a correspondent <laughs> for <laughs> editor. In fact, yeah, editor. editor. Yes. Yeah. So I mean. How does that work? You, so you're everywhere from Algeria right the way through to Zimbabwe. Well, well actually, I don't cover North Africa. So I okay. cover. So I'm the sub-Saharan African. Ah. So it's a mere 50 countries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, look, yes, it's, very, uh, it's a very complicated, challenging job because there are 50 countries with different histories, with different languages, with different cultures, with different economies, with different presidents, um, with different visa requirements. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, and I suppose I'm expected to know about, if not all of them, then an, uh, an awful lot of them and to, you know, report news and trends and business opportunities and cultural changes and, you know, exciting technological developments and just, uh, you know, and human rights abuses and politics and economics. Uh, and, you know, and I tend to write across sleep? the gamut. <laughs> <laughs> I occasionally sleep. Um, I sleep on aircraft when I'm flying down to uh, when I'm flying down to Africa. Look, I'm based in London. Uh, and part of me thinks I should be based somewhere in Africa. But of course, Africa is, I mean, the bit of Africa I cover is 50 countries. So if you're in South Africa, then by definition, you're not in Nigeria, or you're not in Malawi, or you're not in Kenya. And to some extent, it makes sense to cover it from here and to, and to keep flying down and then fly back up. And, and links, partly as a sort of hangover of colonialism, links between African countries are not that good. So it can be extraordinarily expensive, costly, cumbersome to move between countries that on a map look side by side. It can be easier, bizarrely, to fly back up to London and then down again. Really? So it, it's, it's easier to fly from, from a, a country... That, to go to via London to it can it can be I mean this is this is now being eroded thank God slightly but uh, you know especially if you have a country that was colonized by the French and a country that was colonized mm. by the British and they're next door to each other uh, you, I mean you know it started off with telephone systems so you used to route the telephone call through the capital of one colonial power to the capital of the other colonial power and back down to the other colonized power um, and those kind of patterns uh, become kind of structures. And this is, I mean, and it's important because, uh, you know, this is very damaging to the way economies, cultures, all sorts of things um, uh, work because they they always tend to be in reference to the former colonial power. And the, the colonial power, A, were highly exploitative and B, weren't around for that long. They came, they grabbed, they smashed, they left. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and now countries, uh, countries that weren't really countries in the current form have to now get on with um, being nation states and... Uh, you know, um, you know, maximizing potential for their own um, populations, and it's uh, and it's tricky. So it's tricky for them, and it's uh, very tricky for me to uh, to grapple with all of this. But it's that's why it's a fascinating, wonderful job. Wow. So, um, what country uh, do, do you do most of your reporting? Is there ones that you particularly pay attention to? Is yeah, the... there are some. So South Africa has been a big deal uh, for us recently. I mean, it's the Biggest or second biggest economy, it changes um, uh, depending on exchange rate fluctuations. Nigeria is the other very big one. And so South Africa, um, uh, you know, is a big kind of motor um, of the African economy. Uh, there's a lot of investment goes into South Africa. There's obviously a lot of mining. But I think even more important than all of those, really, I mean, so much was kind of, you know, the world's attention used to be on South Africa during the whole anti-apartheid stuff. You know, then you had the fall of the white government. You had, the, you know, the rise of the ANC, Nelson Mandela. There was great sort of hope, and we know the drama and the and the and the and the figures involved. And kind of watching South Africa now, sometimes watching it go wrong, sometimes sometimes watching it go right, you know, is just sort of fascinating in its own in its own right. So you know, Cyril Ramaphosa, who was a union leader, um, who was Mandela's uh, choice to take over as, as president, but was ousted in the ANC, became a very, very wealthy businessman, then became vice president under Jacob Zuma, Jacob Zuma dragging the country down into kind of towards catastrophe, I would say. And then Ramaphosa strikes late last year, becomes the president. And I got an hour with him last week uh, oh, wow. with my editor. We, we interviewed him. Um, that is an amazing arc. There's an amazing history there. There's an awful lot to talk about. Um, and you can bring, you know, the drama of a country like South Africa alive through an interview like that. Um, and uh, so South Africa, uh, that's a very long answer to a short question. South Africa has been one, but by no means all. I mean, I, I've spent quite a lot of time in Nigeria, uh, which is also uh, really interesting. I've sort of picked on little countries for some reason. So I spent a bit of time in Liberia, which is somewhere I knew nothing about um, beforehand, but, but which I've become... Kind of you know interested in um i spent a fair bit of time in kenya 
uh, DRC, the um, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, I write a fair bit about, um, you know, there's a, quite a lot of places. Mozambique, for some odd reason, I found myself going to a few times. And what are the challenges do you think some of those countries face? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think in, in the UK we, we know we know a lot about them. If you want the average person, you know, maybe not, it's well, for Londoner, Nigeria, Ghana, yeah. South Africa. Yeah. Liberia. Yeah, I think everyone knows Liberia of our age because George Ware. Well, yeah. yeah, George Ware. Yeah. 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 And he's reason. now president. Who yeah. I've met. <laughs> have you met George Ware? I have yeah. met George Ware. Have you played football with George Ware? <laughs> I have not, no. I think, uh, I think he might beat me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to it stop is a one myself. It's former World Football of the Year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And the Ballon d'Or, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what was the question? <laughs> well, well, actually, the, the, I mean, the thing is with Africa, like Francis is saying, I don't think anyone oh, yeah. really knows anything. I think the way we think about Africa, we talk about Africa, is very much like Donald Trump talks about Europe. It's like one homogenous blob. Sure, absolutely, yeah. which obviously really annoys, uh, you know, anyone yeah. in Africa. Yeah. You know, Africa, uh, uh, you know, Africa is a country, meaning Africa is not a country, yeah. is a kind of a meme. Um, so I'm very careful, you know, uh, I mean, occasionally one can talk about Africa as a, as a unit and it makes sense, just like you might talk about Europe or the Americas or Asia, you know, from Bangladesh to Japan. It might make sense to talk about those countries, you know, as a unit. But generally, it makes much more sense to talk about individual countries or individual regions. I mean, look, the first big challenge that African countries have is that then that they're not self-defined countries. Um, mm. You know, they were they were drawn on a map. Um, in Berlin by guys with moustaches who many of them had never been to the continent that they were carving up among the colonial powers and you know that has created an enormous damage um, you know you have people who speak the same language on different sides of borders um, you know you have people who have nothing really in common who are you know thrown into the same country um, and they have to build a sense of nation state a sense of purpose um, you know a sense of project which, you know, what I saw in Asia, for example, in China, in Japan, in Korea, had been, you know, sort of 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 year old cultures. And while, you know, African cultures are in a sense the oldest of the lot, mm. but in their modern formation in the state of Nigeria or the state of Kenya, um, uh, they're modern creations. And, and that, that's, the, that's the first problem. And is that, that why you see with. the ethnic and religious conflicts all over the continent that, w that we probably have heard of? Uh, know, yes, although I think we also kind of exaggerate. I mean, uh, for a start, there's very, there have been very few wars between African countries. I mean, you know, you might, you, you know, that may be our view, but I would say it's a prejudiced view. If you, wanna, if you want war killing mayhem, look to Europe. Mm. That's where we've had more of it than anywhere else. These borders artificially drawn. There haven't been many wars between African states. But within there's been yes, ethnic that, cleansing that, yeah. and religious have. Ten, like in Nigeria, religious tension. And uh, or Rwanda. Yeah. Absolutely. Rwanda, you know, was, was there, there was a genocide. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no, no two ways about that. Um, you know, you, you can trace that back to the Belgians kind of trying to distinguish between, you know, in a very kind of racist way, trying to say you are Hutu, you are Tutsis. And there is a strong argument that people didn't really think in that way beforehand. So some of this may be actually... You know, the colonialist powers have kind of fermented this. But yeah, look, I mean, d different peoples with different languages, different beliefs, uh, you know, unless they can find a way of getting on with each other, sometimes don't get on with each other. We've seen that throughout history. And, you know, and that, that's true in, in many African countries. But I, I would challenge the notion that, um, you know, that there's more violence, more turmoil, um, and more inter-ethnic rivalry. I mean, look at Britain. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we've been, you know, a country, sort of self-determined country for hundreds and hundreds of years. We're still arguing about the Scots, the Welsh, the English. We're still arguing about immigration. We're still arguing about whether we're part of Europe or not. Um, you know, but if I called that, you know, tribal England, tribal Britain. You'd you know, be right but, up there with the mainstream you know. of public opinion right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you said that, I think. Yeah. Right, Let's be enough. honest. <laughs> but, um, but all I'm saying is one has to be one has to be careful, and you shouldn't look through the you know the. It's it's easy to fall into sort of stereotypical. So give us an overview. What is happening on the continent right now? What should we think about? What should we know about? What is it the people in the West who don't know anything about Africa, you know, think about it? Okay. Well, there are a few things, and then no, they're by no means all good, but some of them are good. So I would say Africa is Africa. There you go. Um, <laughs> parts of Africa are becoming uh, more democratic. And I've been actually really sort of impressed by um, 
people on the streets sort of idealism about what democracy means. This is a real contrast with, you know, the West where, you know, younger people, lots of surveys show, are kind of more and more disenchanted with democracy. Yeah. And in the United States, there are surveys that, that show, you know, should the military take over, you know. Yeah, it's scary. It's like 25% or something. 25% scary as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what, want a military dictatorship? I don't, I don't know the numbers, but 50 years ago, it would have been nobody. And it's just it's shot up. It's creeping up massively. Wow. Or uh, do you think one strong man would, yeah. would could sort yeah, out yeah. this country? Answer, you know. So It's, uh, it's going like this. So right what now. you're seeing is a disenchantment with democracy mm. uh, in, you know, large swathes of the West. And in Africa, it's actually going the other way. Mm. You get people doing extraordinarily moving things, um, uh, you know, um, campaigning, lining up, walking to polling booths, voting once, voting twice, voting three times, taking pictures on their mobile phones of ballot sheets and s uploading them, having a whole kind of civil society thing to make sure that the result of the election is fair. And so many people that I've heard, whether in Ghana or Nigeria or Kenya, um, or Liberia saying, we don't mind who wins, but we want the election to be fair and we want the person who loses to step down, go with grace. Um, and this doesn't always happen. So in the um, Democratic Republic of Congo, you've got um, Joseph Kabila who's refusing to go, but it's happening all over the place. So there was just an election in Sierra Leone, which I don't think made headline news here, but, but you know, but it, it made a little bit of news. You had an election in Liberia, which actually did kind of briefly make headline news. So you'd had a woman who'd been in power, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, actually the first elected female leader um, uh, in Africa, who had been in for two terms, who uh, her time was up, her party lost the election. She stepped down, her party conceded defeat. And that is becoming much, much more the norm. So I was in Gambia uh, the beginning of 2000, I'm just trying to think, the beginning of 2017. Um, when there'd just been an election uh, and there was a mad kind of dictator um, called Yahya Jame, who said he was going to be uh, in power, I think it was for a billion years, which struck me as... <laughs> Sounds like Donald Trump. <laughs> ambitious <laughs> character. <laughs> struck me as, you know, quite ambitious, let's yeah. say. You know, he missed his... I've sometimes done the... Because he, he's now out of power, so I've sometimes done the calculation how many years he's missed his, yeah. missed his target by. He lost the election. He originally said he would go, then he backtracked and said, I'm not going to go. Then the regional powers sort of said, you know, you will be going, thank you very much. And I was there during all of this and they were pressuring him. They were even kind of threatening perhaps to invade. And then he went. And there was a new guy, uh, Dama Barrow, who had actually w had worked in Britain. I think he'd been at one point um, a security guard at Argos, but he'd also been a property developer. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you are in life, you can always, always make it, guys. You can dream big, dream yeah. big. <laughs> dream big. But, but you know so, what? And there he is, president. So, uh, so, so, so you asked me what... So one thing I would say is that democracy is kind of in a weird sort of way, alive and kicking in parts of Africa in a way that it's not in parts of the West. So well, it's fascinating uh, to me as a Russian because in Russia we still haven't had this. Right. We've <laughs> never had that transition of yes. power without any interference. Russia has never had that. And you, what you're saying is Africa increasingly is having that. Yes. And it's patchy, it can go two steps back, you know, whatever yeah. whatever the phrase is. But but it but there is something definitely happening. And it's interesting and moving and positive. I think that's incredible and that's really heartwarming. I'm I come from a Latin American background where my mother is and politics there is just riddled with corruption and obviously the stereotype and again it's a stereotype mm -hmm. of African politics is a corruption. Um, corruption has essentially pretty much destroyed Venezuela and its um, and its economy. Yep. How much of a challenge does Africa face with its corruption in politics? Yeah, huge. Um, look, you know, d democracy is kind of war by other means um, and the, the, the way that these countries have been kind of formed um, you know, people's loyalties might not be to the state of Kenya. It mm. might be to the Kikuyu. And we kind of think the Kikuyu is a tribe, but that's a really silly way of looking at it. It's better to think of it as like the English or something. You know, these are um, cultures with their own language, um, you know, with their own belief system, uh, with their own kind of cultural traits um, and sort of sense of identity and unity. And so if you're in power, um, your loyalty may be more to you know, the Kikuyu than to this kind of artificial um, nation um, uh, uh, called Kenya. Um, and that can breed corruption. I mean, also, if you don't have, you know, institutions, I mean, we've seen in the West how fragile institutions can be. 
you know, you get a president that comes up and says, I don't believe in the FBI. They make up stuff. <laughs> I don't believe in the uh, fake New York Times. You know, uh, I don't believe in the court system. Um, you know, even when we've had sort of hundreds and hundreds of years of this, our kind of belief system can be quite shaky. If you've never really had that, and there was no real intention by the colonial powers, certainly Britain, to build these things, you know, they, they left the countries with, you know, handfuls of graduates. You know, they didn't really leave much behind in terms of, you know, functioning institutions. So to build those up from scratch, and those are the things that are checks and balances. Mm. Otherwise, who comes to power? Will people come to power that want to enrich themselves? And not always, I should say, but, you know, but depressingly, Often, so what you need is you need the growth of civil society, which I definitely am seeing. Um, you know, you need institutions to put their foot down to draw lines, which you do see sporadically. So when I was in Kenya and there was an election, and there was a claim um, uh, that the election hadn't been entirely fair, the Supreme Court annulled the election. It was kind of a big shock, and lo and behold, people agreed and peacefully went back to the polls. They had another election. It was actually kind of the same result, but <laughs> but 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 you know but, that is but democracy at work, isn't it? That's democracy at work. I mean, you know, if that happened in America, you'd say, well, it's amazing the functioning of democracy despite all the problems. Well, this happened in Kenya. Yeah. Um. So you know, absolutely. You know, if people come to power and they steal lots of money and they enrich their own class and they send their money offshore, that is awful, terrible. You know, you could say that's what's happened. In, in oil rich countries like um, Nigeria and Angola, you know, to a depressing degree. Um, but that is certainly not the whole story. And the other thing we should remember, of course, is that it takes two to tango. It takes two to be corrupt. And on the other side of the table are often our own Western companies who want to extract minerals or oil or whatever. And, uh, you know, uh, if someone's taking a bribe, you can be sure that someone's paying a bribe too. Makes sense. One of the other things, probably final thing that we'll talk about on, on Africa, um, you mentioned the population uh, growth there. And one of the things you talked about now uh, is that now about w 1 billion of the world, 7 billion people live in Africa. And within, I think by the end of the century, you said uh, it would be 4 out of 12 billion. So 4 out of 11. 4 yeah. out of 11. Yeah. Even. So more than, so we go from uh, a seventh to more than a third. That's right. Um, and uh, tell us about that. Okay, so there's a guy called Hans Rosling who died. That's, uh, a, that's the guy I was talking about. Yeah, was yeah, it? I, I wondered actually. Yes. So yeah. Hans Rosling, who I think is a genius, I really love um, Hans Rosling. Uh, he has this uh, easy way of remembering the world's population, um, which is he says the pin code of the world is one 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 four. Um, so that means there's one billion people. These are approximate numbers. One billion people live in the Americas. One billion live in Europe. One billion live in Africa, and four billion live in Asia. We tend to think of the world's population as exploding, but this is not true because if you fast forward to 2050, the pin code of the world becomes 1125, i.e. 1 billion in, Amer in the Americas because the Americas has basically stopped growing. 1 billion in Europe because Europe has basically stopped growing. Another billion in Asia, i.e. another, uh, what is that, 25%, um, because uh, Asia is really slowing down and then it will sort of stop. But Africa keeps growing. So it goes to 2 billion and then it may double again by the end of the century to 4 billion. So he said, I think jokingly, that you know his, uh, his tip for, his investment tip is um, real estate in Somalia because he says that <laughs> <laughs> because, because he says that the whole kind of um, focus of the global economy will tilt um, uh, from the Pacific uh, and the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean because then you will have 5 billion people in Africa and uh, sorry, 4 billion in Africa and 5 billion in Asia centered around the Indian Ocean and that that will become the kind of the whole locus of world trade and um, uh, business and, you know, uh, you know, this is futurology, so you can't take it too seriously and, uh, and I certainly don't advise buying beachfront territory in uh, Mogadishu right yet, <laughs> but you never know. And the locus of the world is shifting there and I think that's something that um, that is important in, in very interesting ways possibly in, in frightening ways if, you know, if, if those people don't have jobs, um, if their economies aren't functioning, then that's going to lead to, you know, huge amounts of turmoil, which will not be confined to Africa. Um, uh, and if they do have jobs and they, and they are in functioning economies, then, you know, what, what, what we have tended to see as the kind of the problem continent could become a locus of sort of 
you know, opportunity and, uh, and you know, growth. <laughs> there you go. Finally, a positive note in this yeah, podcast. Yes. Very good. So start saving up for property in Mogadishu 20 years from now. David Pilling, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, you're on Twitter at David Pilling. At David Pilling. At David right. Pilling, and the book is called The Growth Delusion. It is indeed. Thank Perfect. you so much. It's been Th fun. Uh, uh, and just before we go, uh, Constantine, what's your Twitter handle? At Constantine Kiss, and I still have the Russian bots following me, so join them. Uh, yep, uh, mine's Francis Foster. I'm at Failing Human. Give me a follow on that. Um, and yeah, I I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for coming on. Not at all. Thank you. Follow us uh, at TriggerPod on all the social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Very important. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. And also, before we go, just make sure to leave a rating. Five stars, please. And tell us what you think. And even better, if you really enjoy it, tell a friend. Thank you. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.